0: Psalm 100, it's just five verses long, nice and simple to digest. It's probably written by King David about 3,000 years ago. Uh, But as you know, the principles and the message of the Bible are timeless. That's why it's important to read it. So I'm going to read this 3,000-year-old Psalm now, and then we'll look at what it's actually saying to us here and now in 2019. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Okay, what's the purpose of this psalm? that psalms are songs. It's often referred to as the believer's songbook. So a helpful thing to remember when you're reading the psalms is that often just beneath in the Bible the psalm number, there's a one-liner that explains who it was written by or the occasion for which it could be used. And if you look at this one, it simply says, forgiving, grateful worship. There you are. We can all go home now. That's Psalm 100 explains to you. This week, when you're praying, keep that as your focus in your personal devotions and in our prayer gatherings. The purpose and anticipated result of this psalm is forgiving, grateful worship. And I'm going to help to uh, hopefully help us to see how that works today. So, a top tip for praying this as you read it is we should look for ways to be thankful. Uh, grateful to God and more like you want to do something about it worship and I'm saying that because you'll find it a whole lot easier to pray this week if you take a deep breath and shrug off the pressures of life and kind of set your heart to gratitude mode as you come to this passage it's a bit like on Christmas morning Christmas is just six glorious weeks away now if your heart isn't set to grateful on Christmas morning, if you're just normal grouchy morning guy without coffee, you're not going to experience the wonder of Christmas morning, are you? And you're probably going to offend someone. And, uh, so another top tip now for Christmas, as you approach the Christmas tree on Christmas morning or wherever you open your presents, set your heart and your mind to thankful, so that it goes well for you and, uh, and those around you. You don't burn the turkey or whatever. You understand? Good. So that's, uh, you just got to kind of set your heart to the right frequency, and so too with Psalm 100. Merry Christmas. Okay, verse 1 and 2 tells us what we should do. Shout to the Lord, everyone. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him and sing out joyful songs, like we've just been doing here. We sing carefully chosen, biblically solid, recognisable participatory songs of joy to and about Jesus. That's the job of our worship leaders, to pick helpful songs that we might do Psalm 100, sing songs of grateful praise. We sing other songs too at times, and we might do this morning. Sometimes we sing songs of lament or instruction even to one another. The worship song, come, now is the time to worship. We're not singing that to God, we're singing that to one another. We're encouraging each other to come and worship That's one of the reasons why corporate worship, why singing together is important. In Colossians 3, it actually tells us that we are to sing songs of gratitude to God, but also to teach and even warn each other through song. Corporate singing, togetherness singing, worship is important. But for the most part, our worship leaders are here to carefully and skillfully pick songs that help us To remember who God is and who we are in light of that, and what He's done for us, and how we should respond. As you can see on the screen there, the the worship leader, Matt Redmond, says that worship, true grateful worship, is the right human response to a revelation of God's glory. That's what our worship team are helping us to do, to respond to a revelation of God's glory. When we see or grasp something of God's goodness, Something happens on the inside that we should express outwardly. In other words, worship should be the natural instinctive reflex as we realize just how good is, just how much he's given for us, just how much he loves us, and just how blessed we are to be adopted into his family. And so this week we should pray for our worship leaders and our worship teams. They have an awesome responsibility and they serve us incredibly hard. They're often the first ones in the building on a Sunday morning and they work midweek prepping and um, rehearsing and picking songs. We should pray for more worship leaders and musicians and songwriters and sound and visuals people to help us in this uber important part of church life. People will often come to church and engage with the singing before they engage with the gospel. And so we need to sing the gospel accurately and melodically and accessibly and worshipfully. Now another element of what we need to consider when we come to worship is that our job and the job of the worship team is not to kind of whip up some sort of excitable frenzy or to in some way create a presence or an atmosphere of God in the room. God is already here when we gather. In the book of Revelation, and elsewhere in scripture, it gives us a vision of God's throne. And as part of that vision, it says that God is seated on a glorious throne And the writer of Revelation says that God appears as the most beautiful, gleaming jewels and brilliant light, all somehow blended together, the most beautiful and brilliant natural things that the human mind can uh, use to describe the brilliance and the majesty of God within the constraints of the English language. God is glorious. And it says, around the throne, there are four supreme, angelic beings. Supremely knowledgeable and powerful. They're the ultimate throne bearers, if you like. And around them, there are 24 more thrones. And on these thrones sit 24 heavenly rulers with their crowns on. And around them are thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of angels all attending the throne of God. It's the ultimate picture of celebration and adoration and glory and majesty and worship. And it says that at all times they do one thing for one reason. They sing. They bow down. They lift their voices. The rulers lay their crowns before the king. The stadiums of angels hovering around the throne are worshipping loudly. And this is why. This is taken from Revelation 4 and 5. I'm paraphrasing this. They sing, You are holy. You were and you are and you are to come. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. Because you created all things. By your will, all things exist and came to be. And Jesus, you alone are able to unfold and execute God's plan for humanity and creation. Because you were slain, and by your blood, you purchased for God us, the followers of God, the church. We're bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, and nothing, nothing can change that now. Brothers and sisters, we don't pick songs which say anything new about God. We don't need to do anything to create the presence of God amongst us or to get God's attention or to chivvy up the angels or other things I sometimes hear people say. They are already singing. They have always been singing. They always will be We just join in with that song that's eternally being sung about the goodness and the power and the majesty of God and the effectiveness of the sacrifice of the lion of the tribe of Judah. His name is Jesus. That's what we do when we sing. That's the job of our worship teams. Pray for them this week that they will write and pick and play songs skillfully that help us to engage with the song of the ages about the God of the ages. In Revelation 14, it talks about us one day being with God and singing a song that nobody else can learn. It's called the song of the redeemed. That's marked out for us. It's reserved for us, the followers of God. Revelation 14, three, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the angels and rulers, and no one could learn that song except those who'd been redeemed from the earth, that's us. Not even the angels sing that song. That's our future. And this isn't because God will somehow so bend our wills or force our hand that somehow we kind of bow and scrape like singing slaves for all eternity. That sounds more like hell. We'll do all sorts of incredible things in heaven, but always with a song of worship. Because in heaven we'll be perfected, glorified is the word the Bible used. And in our perfection, the Bible tells us that we will want to bring song and worship to God for all eternity. And he will be teaching us the song and we'll be singing it back to him and to each other. How good is our God? Listen carefully to this. This is why. It's because that's what we were created for. We will be at our happiest and most satisfied when we are finally liberated completely from sin and rebellion to enter into the freedom of worship for which we were created. We will never be happier than when we are eternally at the worship of God. That's our highest calling. Worship God is our highest calling. It's our highest purpose Fish were created to swim and shirts were made to be worn and lectins were made to put your notes on. Humans were created for worship. We've said a number of times from up here that you can explain all of humanity's problems by this simple truth. Because we were created to worship, if you don't worship God, you'll find something else to worship and it'll mess you up. You can't not. You'll worship power and sex and money and future stability and self-protection and stuff and your children and your intellect, all of those things are okay. They're meant to be enjoyed, but they are not ultimate. They are not meant to be worshiped. There is only room for one God in your life. You won't spend eternity singing the song of the rich or the excellently well-parented or of the secure retirement plan you will only sing the song of the redeemed, of God, or you won't sing at all. Because here's the thing, we become like what we worship. If your deepest need is for stability and security, you're at risk of being uh, prone to anxiety or controlling your environment, to financial stinginess perhaps, because money and a controlled outlook then become your God's. If your deepest need is the love and approval and acceptance of other people, you're prone to become someone who is, or you're you're at risk of becoming someone who is prone to appeasement or flattery or even sexual promiscuity as a way of winning the approval of others and proving to yourself that you are accepted and worthy of someone else's affection. These things then become your gods. They control and drive your behavior. That's what false gods always do. You see, it's it's simple. If you worship Jesus truly, you will become more like him and you will enter into his redemption and you will say yes to him and one day you will sing the song of that redemption. If you worship Babylon, that's the Bible's terminology for the world and all its false gods of power and money, then you'll end up like Babylon, hostile, afraid, Self-seeking, and more importantly, without Jesus and without hope. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we who contemplate, gaze upon, worship the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. As we look to Jesus, we become like Jesus. Jesus. Someone I know wrote a a song which became quite well known in churches around the world. And um, one of the lines really troubled me and rattled around in my head for a number of months when I was a a young Christian. The line was this. Worshipping other things destroys our liberty. Worshipping other things destroys our liberty. And I I couldn't quite work out how or why. I thought, well, if I choose to worship something, that's an expression of my liberty. But it's obvious. In the same way, if you put a fish up in an apple tree, that might be a little victory for the fish. If that's its will, but it'll destroy the fish, it'll die. If you put a human that's created to worship God in front of any other thing that takes first place in their hearts, it destroys our liberty to function as we are meant to, as worshippers of God. Anything else destroys our liberty... That's why verse 3 of the psalm says what it does. It says that we're to know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. When we worship, we bless God, and we do ourselves good. C.S. Lewis says that true worship, in some sense, the full kind of completion of our worship comes when we actually delight in the thing that we are worshipping otherwise it's just singing last week last Saturday I sat right there and watched South Africa win the World Cup I'm a South African for those of you who don't know me And part of my my enjoyment was shouting at the screen and expressing praise. It would have been less of an act of enjoyment if I wasn't able to do that. It's like when you see a sunset and you say, that's a beautiful sunset. Or you look at your spouse and you compliment them. It's a natural kind of expression. It's an overflow of your heart. And that's what worship should be like. That's why in the 1600s, our church fathers made this incredible summary statement of mankind They said the chief end of man, the purpose of man, the ultimate purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Are you enjoying God? Are you enjoying relationship with God? You can love God and perhaps not even like him. We are called to enjoy God. Psalm 100 reminds us who we are and what we should do about it. We are God's. We should worship him. Later on in his letter, the apostle Peter develops this truth further. He says this, speaking to the church. You are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. That's who you are. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is who you are. This is what you're meant to do. The world needs true worship of Jesus. The world needs Jesus. We need Jesus. We need to pray this week for more worship in our lives. That true worship of the one true uncreated God will force out and displace any other kind of worship of created things that we're holding on to. And we need to pray that in our ailing world, if you want to know God if you want to make him chief in your heart and find soul satisfaction, if we want our community, our town, and our nation to find its way, then we don't need to look too much further than these three verses of Psalm 100 and pray it into yourself and pray it over others this week as well. Okay, time for a story. This is a a little Stamp family story of thankfulness gone wrong. Uh, Last year, after being away from South Africa for 23 years, we decided uh, and we managed to save up and take a trip over there. Uh, I really wanted Victoria and my kids to see Africa and just to experience how incredible a place it was. My kids were beyond excited. We spent months preparing and planning and dreaming. And then the day came, we excitedly got onto the plane and there was much merriment and excitement. We actually traveled across with uh, Matt and Grace Hosier and their daughter Felicity, and we were all having a whale of a time on the plane. And as a dad, I felt incredibly pleased and proud and grateful to God that uh, I'd been able to pull this off and that I could finally say I'd taken my family to South Africa. And I was looking for a kind of thankfulness in response to that. Anyway, we had a connecting flight in Ethiopia and we arrived there at 4 a.m. in the morning just as the first kind of rich rays of red African sun were breaking over the savannah. We were in Africa. Now, this was a moment for appreciation and thankfulness. But one of my daughters doesn't do well when she's sleep deprived. She's actually one of the most thoughtful, joyful humans I've ever met, but if you drag her little four-stone ponytail body out onto an Ethiopian runway at 4 a.m., you may as well have just released the four-horsemen of the apocalypse on the world. <laughs> so I'm kind of bouncing around, and I go up to her grumpy little face, and I pinch her cheeks, and I go, we're in Africa, isn't it awesome? And as loud as she can, in the middle of the Addis Ababa runway, surrounded by Ethiopians, she just bellows, it stinks here! And I'm like, OK, just calm down. Now, I'm not trained in international diplomacy, but I was thinking very fast about repairing any diplomatic damage in those moments. And we, uh, we laugh as a family about that now. But I was reflecting as I was preparing this on uh, that story and how sometimes your kids in those moments, because their adult filters aren't fully developed, somehow reflect something of our own hearts, about adult hearts. I was looking for joy and gratitude from her, but fatigue had overwhelmed her and turned into complaint. How often is it like that with us? We have, relatively speaking, everything we could need. We live in one of the most powerful, prosperous nations, in the most healthy, peaceful, prosperous time in history. We have nice people around us. We have supermarkets that are fully stocked, and petrol stations to fill our cars, it's not like that in many parts of Africa. If we get the sniffles, we toddle off down the road to the doctor, and then we pick up our subsidised medication, and we eat three feasts a day, we watch our cable TV, and then we flump into our feathery beds in our centrally heated houses, and then we'll do the same tomorrow. And what are our newspapers and Facebook full of? Things are just falling apart. We have the worst political problems in the history of our nation. Our politicians are buffoons. Go to Africa and find out what the politicians are like. The bankers have ruined the economy. Possibly not everyone's going to get the flu jab this year. 20% crash in the housing market predicted. On the front page of a major national newspaper a few weeks ago, uncovered how a company boss was encouraging his employees to cheat and send in more than one vote for somebody on Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> Strictly Come Dancing. Front page of a national newspaper. We are terminally ungrateful. We give ourselves a summer pep talk. We go off to Spain or Cornwall for a week. And then a few weeks later, fatigue sets in and everything stinks. We'll do it. I, I'd do it. Verse 4 tells us, We are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. There's a reason that the Bible tells us to do this and talk so often about gratitude. It's because of this. We have so much to be grateful for, and we keep forgetting it. All the things I just talked about, I didn't even mention that we've been saved from the wreckage of our own poor decisions and our rebellion against God. The fact that our, because of our own inability to turn to the only good shepherd, the only good father, that we were completely hellbound and and with no hope of redemption. And all that's been dealt with now for us by Jesus. Verse 4 says that we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving. The imagery of gates would have been significant for the people of Israel. It would have represented the huge gates in the huge walls that surrounded Jerusalem where pilgrims from afar and residents of the city would come to worship God in the temple. The psalm says, come, come in through the gates. Come to the temple of God. Come to the place where he dwells. And as you behold him, as he is revealed to you, Exhibit the right response. Worship. Romans 1 is one of the most distressing and worrisome chapters in Scripture. From verse 18 to the end of the chapter, it's entitled, God's Wrath Against Sinful Humanity. Good luck when you get to that chapter in your morning CBR readings. It's not fun reading, but let me read it to you anyway, and tell me if this doesn't sound to you like so much of 21st century Britain. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen being understood from what he has made. So that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like us, like mortal human beings. And birds and animals and reptiles. There it is again, our innate propensity to worship something, anything, even created things that look like reptiles. Therefore, what does God do? Does he hurl asteroids down from space on us? No. Next verse says God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. In response to ongoing, hardened rebellion and the worship of created things, God lets us have our own way. And that's a disaster, because that's the place where all of humanity's problems live. If a fish wants desperately to live up an apple tree, and you give it over to its desire, as I said earlier, it might feel like a victory for the fish, but the fish is going to die. If we are created to be in relationship with God, which we are, he's not going to force us if we decide to go a different way, and that might feel like a victory for our sense of freedom, but it leads to death. Let me read verse 21 again, which lists the root cause of all of this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. In other words, worshiplessness and thanklessness are the root causes of the wrath of God. Thanklessness will kill us. God gave them over in their sinful desires. That's the wrath of God. God help me from my choices. I know without God in my life, if there's a way to mess things up, I will find it. And I can prove that because that's what I did before I knew him. Because I was, we were all created for God, to worship God. I'd be like a fish up an apple tree without him. So would we all. If we're to know more joy in the Lord as a people, then this week we need to choose to oppose grumbling and pray for an increase in our thankfulness. Here's what the writer Mark Buchanan says about this issue. The best way to embody a Godward orientation, to train yourself in God's goodness and sovereignty, is thankfulness. Thankfulness is a secret passageway into a room you can't find any other way. It allows us to discover rest and peace in God. Those dimensions of God's world, God's presence, God's character that are hidden always from the thankless. I love this. Ingratitude is an eye disease, every much as bit as a heart disease. It sees only flaws, scars, and scarcity. Likewise, the God of the thankless is wary and apathetic and suspicious, then indifferent, grubbing about in our domestic trifles one moment, oblivious to our personal catastrophes the next. During their time of imprisonment in the Book of Acts, Paul and Silas chose not to moan or curse or demand or whinge about Brexit. Paul and Silas sing. Paul and Silas pray. Paul and Silas hold church. They take Sabbath. They rejoice in their suffering. They consider it pure joy to go through trials of many kinds. They worship God. And all the while, the world is listening to them. The prison guards and the prisoners are listening to them. And then a miracle happens. An earthquake hits of such magnitude that their chains fall off and the cell doors fly open and they find freedom. A few minutes ago, I mentioned people coming through the temple gates, as it encourages us to in this verse, as they approach the temple to worship. God's presence resided in the inner sanctum of the temple in those days, inside a small chamber called the Holy of Holies, behind a huge, heavy, four-inch-thick curtain that no one was about to get past. You couldn't get that close to God or you would die. But when Jesus died, something far more significant happened. At the moment of his death, that curtain ripped from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies was laid bare for all to see and for all to come close. Jesus' death means that now you and I and anyone who chooses to say yes to him can come close to God, can know God, can be known by God And if you haven't yet said yes to Jesus, this could be your morning to do so. It just takes a simple confession of faith. Jesus, I've fallen short of God's standards, and I'm sorry. I want to live for you. I want to live in freedom. I need you to save me from death. Please meet me. Amen. That's it. Let me encourage you this morning to think very carefully about that. Don't be like the fish in the apple tree. Don't try and win a victory for yourself and send yourself to hell. Look at all the words that the psalm has already used to describe what we need to do to worship and practice thankfulness. It's more than just singing, it's our whole life. In verse 1 it says, shout for joy. Verse 2, worship and come before him. Verse 3, know that he is God. Verse 4, enter his gates. Give thanks. What this means is that grateful worship is never less than, but always more than just a matter of words. It's a choice. It's an orientation of heart. It's how we live our whole lives. When we worship and as we pray this week, we need to practice, mostly through thankfulness, the presence of God until we are utterly convinced of his goodness and sovereignty, until he is bigger in your life and you find rest in him alone. The final verse in this psalm simply explains why we should worship and draw close and be thankful. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. In demonstration of God's goodness, I don't think I can put this any better than my friend Jenny Pollock, who wrote a blog a while back, outlining the 48 times the Bible uses these words, but God. Jenny lists a large number of them, but let me just pick out four for you this morning. Speaking of God's sufficiency... My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Speaking of God's sacrificial love for us, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For someone will rarely die for a good person, though perhaps for a good person someone might be prepared to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us speaking about God's power to raise the dead and make all things right again. They put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and about God's default position towards us. And you were dead in the sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. This is great news. This is not a God who is indifferent to our suffering or angry at our actions. This is a God who has deep personal compassion for us, knowing that we can't help but mess up and rebel against him. He himself comes down from heaven. He became a human being and worked as a carpenter and became tired and hungry and weak like we do. He cried for us, he taught us a better way, and one day he was arrested for us. He had his beard ripped out, he had his flesh whipped away by Roman centurions, he had his face punched, he was spat upon, he had nails driven through his hands and feet, and he suffocated to death on a cross. He didn't do anything wrong, he didn't deserve that, he didn't have to do that. He chose to do that because he loved us then. And as it says in the psalm, still does with an everlasting love. Does that sound like the kind of God who isn't good? Can you imagine a friend who you're close to going through that for you? One thing about Remembrance Sunday is that it's a chance for us to pay tribute and and give thanks to soldiers who died for our freedoms. That's the least we can do to say thanks, to say thank you to them. And so too was Jesus. And what makes it all the more amazing are these two thoughts. Jesus could have overcome the entire Roman army if you wanted to, but he didn't because he knew that the price for sin, the penalty for sin is death, and he paid it for us. This is good news. And the second one is he didn't do it for a nation or an ideal or for a people group that he was passionate about per se. He did it for you. He knew your heart even then. He knew your name even then. And he said, I'm going to the cross to save your life and give you eternal life with me. That's also good news. Jesus is the best kind of friend you could have. God is the best kind of father you could have. To say that he isn't good is to say that you believe in a different kind of God. An angry, capricious God maybe or something like that. But not a God who pours out his wrath against sin on himself so that we don't have to experience it. Before that, we were in terrible trouble, but God... Let me close with this, and let this fuel your prayers this week for more joy in the Lord as you come to him in worship and thankfulness. In the Old Testament, there's a story of the people of God, the Israelites, being saved out of slavery where they were in Egypt, uh, kept in slavery by Pharaoh, and um, Shortly after that, very shortly after that, they give thanks to God by creating a big, whopping great big golden calf to worship instead of God. And so Moses goes up a mountain to meet with God to um, apologize on behalf of the people and to uh, seek his mercy and forgiveness and and, uh, to ask him not to abandon his people. And God says, okay, yeah, I will. And then Moses had one more request for himself, it was a personal request. He said, let me see your glory. Moses was hungry to see God's glory and God said yes. And so God puts him in a space between two rocks so that when God does reveal his glory, it doesn't just simply fry Moses alive because you can't see God and live, that's what God says to Moses. Now think for a moment about what Moses expected to see. Thunder and lightning, rainbows, earthquakes, millions of angels, Dazzling lights, deafening music. That, that's what I think about when I think of the glory of God. That's how the Greeks thought of Zeus or the Romans thought of Jupiter. But listen to what God says. He says to Moses, and this breaks my heart God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And then he comes down in a cloud and he declares his goodness. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and sin. That's the glory of God. His goodness is his glory. That's why he's worthy of our worship. That's the secret at the heart of God's glory. And we see this best as we look at the cross, him dying for us. And that he is in every single way good. His glory, the, the reason that we should enter into his gates with a joyful noise, is best seen on the cross. Because on the cross, he let all his goodness pass before us. This week, let's pray that like never before, we grasp a hold of the goodness of God. And that as we do, we join in with the song of the angels who sing, worthy is our lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and praise. Because with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are merciful to us. Thank you that you have chosen of your own volition to save us, to pay the price of our sin, death, yourself, by going to the cross. King Jesus, thank you for that. Lord, help us to grasp something anew of the joy of our salvation this morning and the great gratitude that we should show you in response. Lord, thank you that you caused all your glory to pass before us on the cross. Thank you that today you let all your, glo- your goodness pass before us. God, help us to look at creation. Help us to look at each other. Help us to look in your word. Help us to hear with um, kind of fresh ears and see with fresh eyes and know with a fresh heart just how good you are and how glorious you are. Father, I pray this week for all of us that as we come to you in prayer, that we would do it with joy and thankfulness. Worthy are you, O God. Amen. Amen.